ready, Bernie? You know it. All right, let's do it. Welcome, everyone, to Wolverheme Happy Hour. I'm Anthony Personati. And I'm Bernie Marini. We are hematology clinical pharmacists, and this is a podcast where we drink and we nerd out about data. Welcome back, everybody, to Wolverheme Happy Hour. Bernie, it's been a couple weeks since our last podcast. I have an idea that I want to run by you. So, okay, we make $0 off this podcast. We're not paid great being clinical pharmacists. (laughs) I want to make some money here. Okay, so here's my idea. We're going to create a drug that's completely inert, that does nothing for patients. Okay. But we're going to run a randomized controlled trial Mm -hmm. and show that it is not detrimental to our patients. It doesn't harm our patients. It doesn't help our patients. Mm. But it doesn't harm them. Okay. And then we're going to call it the new standard of care, price it out of a couple million dollars, and we're going to become millionaires. Thoughts? I, I think that's, <laughs> that drug is called, uh, we, we can call it nolarabine, maybe? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but yeah, I think there's a lot of examples of that out there. But uh, I thought, Sue, you had some other idea to make us some money because, uh, <laughs> you know, we aren't sponsored or, or anything like that. No. So, yeah. No, it's, uh, you know where I was going with that. And so today <laughs> is going to be a, f- a fun discussion and we're going to, everybody who's like completely clueless and has no idea where that idea came from, you're going to see in one of the studies that Bernie's going to present, you're going to be like, what the fuck is going on? How is this the standard of care? And why isn't Anthony's idea? Why can't we just do what he did? Because they're clearly doing this and why can't we all become millionaires? So anyways, let's first start off with uh, Bernie. What are you drinking, sir? So I have a flying monkeys craft brewery you know this place <laughs> no i just laugh because you come up with the best naming beers i love it flying monkey yeah what did you, what is it well this is from windsor ontario oh, down down oh. south where you're from my my homeland <laughs> your homeland um and this is the marshmallow ipa marshmallow IPA. yeah look at this can that's a it's psychedelic that's what I was just going to say. Very yeah, psychedelic. Yeah. So it cool. says, squish them together and hops can do anything. <laughs> like puffed up little joy blobs, soft hops oozing creamy light and tropical daydreams swell with pillows of lactose and vanilla bean for a curiously insistent mallow gentle magic. Oh Squishy God. like pourable air. This IPA goodie is full of bounce. <laughs> that is the best marketing of a beer can I've ever heard in my life. I agree, but I got this in Windsor. Uh, Maddie and the 12U Big B travel hockey team, we had a tournament, which we won, by the way. Congratulations. Beat all those Canadian teams. You got lots of winners these days. You I know. know. Wolverine football, national mm-hmm. championship. Detroit the Lions. Lions. Yes. Maddie's hockey team. Mm-hmm. It's a great, it's a great year for uh, Detroit sports, except the Pistons. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. It's actually pretty good. It's like, uh, it's not as fruity as I thought, given the crazy Mm -hmm. psychedelic can, but it's, Mm you know, it is creamy. It's like a creamy IPA. Cool. Excellent. What do you got? Well, so I'm actually embarrassed to tell you, I'm actually only drinking water today. (laughs) <laughs> and, and, and I saw your, your face and it was filled with disappointment, but, but hear me out. So I am literally give, getting over the most malicious virus I've ever picked up from my, mm. my son's daycare. 
I, I've had graft versus host disease of the GI tract for the <laughs> oh, last no. four or five days. Uh, grade two nausea and vomiting. Uh, it's and so like I'm just I'm barely functional and trying to just trying oh, to keep no. things down here. So uh, bourbon would not be helpful in this no. case today. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Imodium. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh geez. But, but it brings up a good point. So grade two nausea and vomiting is absolutely horrible. Like I, I, I mm-hmm. on Saturday, I was completely incapacitated, couldn't, couldn't do anything. And it's literally only grade two nausea, vomiting. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I was on the brink of death. And <laughs> it, it brings up a point of like, like it yeah. is not mild toxicity when right, you're talking right. about grade two toxicities. We, yeah. I, I feel like we need to like reframe uh, you know, grade four is literally the brink of death. You're borderline about to die. And mm-hmm. so that should just be called borderline about to die. Grade two and three should be severe toxicities. Mm-hmm. And grade one should be moderate. And there should never be any mild toxicities. I, I agree. I agree. I mean, I think any time that we see a paper or a presentation that says the therapy was relatively well tolerated, you should look at the grade one, two <laughs> toxicity rates. Yep. And if they're anything above, you know, 10%, that is, that's a high rate of toxicity. Mm-hmm. We can't say that these things are inert because yep. you end up incapacitated like Anthony on a couch, <laughs> yep. unable to eat and drink and take care of himself <laughs> if it were not for Victoria. <laughs> this is true. I mean, vomiting five times a day is only grade two. It was horrible. That's nuts. Yeah. So anyways, um, all right. What are we talking about today, Bernard? Because it's, well, not, it's not about this stuff. Yeah, no. <laughs> well, uh, we still have to wrap up some ash review. So we've talked yes. about myeloma. We've talked about lymphoma. We've talked about AML. But we haven't done probably our favorite disease state, ALL, in the abstracts that we saw at ASH. And I think the major reason we haven't done it yet is, to be honest, it was relatively underwhelming in terms of practice changing articles, yeah. but they did generate a lot of hype. You know, some of these articles, people are like, oh yeah, new standard of care. So I think we need to talk about them. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, right. So when we did our AML one, you started with your favorite abstract. Let's do the opposite here. <laughs> start start with your least favorite abstract. Oh, that's that's <laughs> hard. There's just so many. <laughs> um, which, which one do you think? will stir the pot the most? Well, I think I'll start with one that I I went to the presentation. So, you know, I was there, was in the audience, and this was a study um, by the COG Mm -hmm. looking at outcomes in adolescent young adults um, with TALL who were treated on COG 0434 and 1231. And they looked at outcomes in their AYA patients and they compared them to their non-AYA patients to say, Mm -hmm. in our AYA population, did they do just as well? Did the drugs that have now become standard of care, e.g. nilarabine, maybe bortezomib, should these also be used in our AYA patients? Or is Mm -hmm. it just in our younger patients where they benefit? So just to give people a quick refresher, in 0434, Nilarabine demonstrated better disease-free survival in the overall population, but there was no overall survival benefit. And this DFS benefit was mostly seen in patients who were given high-dose methotrexate, um, not the Capizzi arm where you also get a little bit more asparaginase. Some issues with the study, 
Um, those with CNS disease were non-randomized to high-dose methotrexate. But anyway, in this setting, nilarabine has better DFS than no nilarabine, but no survival benefit. So that's the context in 0434. In 1231, there was better event-free survival and overall survival with bortezomib in T lymphoblastic lymphoma. And they were able to omit uh, cranial radiation therapy in the majority of patients. That's kind of the main takeaways, I'd say, from that study. Anything else from 1231 you would say, Anthony? No, but I feel as though for TALL, we need to do an entire dedicated podcast because I could hear you cringing. Yes. You were giving the results of what you feel many believe are the results, but I think Nilarabine has been the biggest bamboozlement of, of ALL <laughs> in our history. I, I think it does not improve anybody's outcomes, uh, but because of the way it was studied, did improve disease-free survival. But that's a story for another day. And yep. not to confuse everybody, uh, I'll, I'll hold that. But um, but no, I think you, you eloquently described uh, both studies and what many believe to conclude from both of those studies. All right, so in these two studies, in our AYA patients, um, the four-year disease-free survival in 0434 was 81% for AYA patients and 84% for non-AYA patients. And the overall survival was 88% versus 90%. So overall, that's, a, that's, that's fantastic, right? Yeah, that's incredible. These adolescent young adult patients, when treated with BFM-based regimens, have excellent outcomes. So that's, that's a yep. pretty good uh, outcome, right? Yep. And I think uh, if I remember correctly, when I was watching it, um, Lydia, our, our leukemia pharmacist, Lydia Benitez, had a question. I, I believe her question was, what was the median age of the mm -hmm. AYA population? Because like, you know, is, is this an AYA, AYA population where the median age is not far from like even the peds patients? You know, are these just a bunch of, you know, 18 year olds, 16 year olds? Mm -hmm. Uh, or these are are these you know thirty year olds because aways uh, up to you know potentially forty we we would consider up to forty five mm -hmm. maybe even higher but you know did I don't think they mentioned no. the median age uh, nope. and and the, the when the the, the the presenter was asked, uh, I don't think they knew what the median age of the AYA population they was. They did not. Which, so if and when they publish this analysis, that'll be interesting yeah. to look at because yeah. you know it's possible it's not. The typical patients that we're seeing these probably yeah. older aya patients yeah. in practice you know right. maybe the age was in the 15 to 18 range i'm guessing right or even early 20s they're Could not be. the 35 yeah. year olds yeah 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 certainly you know, not because they're, they're both of these studies would have only included they're pediatric studies up to the age of maybe 30 uh most of these studies maybe 25 maybe 25 to 30, 21 yeah they also, when breaking down 0434 a little bit further, because there were two randomizations uh, in this, a Capizzi versus high dose, and then nilarabine, no nilarabine, they found that Capizzi methotrexate had better disease-free survival than AYA patients receiving high dose methotrexate mm -hmm. at 96% compared to 78%. Wow. So pretty dramatic difference wow. with better DFS for Capizzi yep. with that extra pegasparaginase. But the N yep. is small, and so I think it's yeah. it's hard to make you know definitive conclusions. But what is also interesting, which I think the key takeaway from or four three four was that nilarabine is God, right? <laughs> that there was no benefit to nilarabine. Eighty five percent 
compared to 89%. So it was actually better in patients without nilarabine mm -hmm. in this study. Yeah. And and there's and the reason why I brought brought this uh, this little joke up on the introductory uh, discussion here was the way the f they phrased. Oh my god! This is is wasn't how you just described it. It was nilarabine does not have a detrimental aspect in AYAs, yeah. right? Isn't that how yeah. they phrased let me, it? Let me read the conclusion slide to you. Yeah, so, there we go. There we go. So. 0434, we saw that Capizzi was better than high dose. Nilarabine was not better than no nilarabine. Uh, 1231, there really wasn't inter anything interesting there. There didn't seem to be a benefit to bortezomib. Their conclusions. There was a survival advantage for AYA TALL participants who received Capizzi methotrexate. Okay. I can Perfect. get behind that this. statement. We agree. Yep. Yeah. There was no survival disadvantage <laughs> for AYAs who received nilarabine. What? <laughs> Come on! What the? So is that is, is that is our that? new is that our new primary endpoint? Uh, is is not overall survival benefit? It's it's a, a no survival disadvantage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if something doesn't improve outcomes, there was no disadvantage to giving this expensive <laughs> toxic medication. Yep. So someone asked about it in the audience, like uh, you know, kind of like, a, are you serious? Like, is your conclusion really <laughs> uh, there's no disadvantage and we should keep using it? And they were basically like, well, yeah. Duh. Oh my it's God. great. And yeah. there were a lot of eye rolls in the audience, yeah. as I, there I, should have been. Yeah, I felt the presentation was quite disingenuous. Mm -hmm. Did not like it. So yeah, that was my least favorite, mostly because of the conclusion. Yeah. But I think we can learn some things. I think overall, this does show us that if you give AYA patients, granted, these are probably younger AYA Young, patients, yeah. yep. BFM-based strategies with Mm -hmm. uh, an emphasis on asparaginase, as evidenced by the, the superior outcomes in the Capizzi methotrexate yeah. arm, these patients have excellent long-term survival rates. 88%, 90% long-term survival. That's yep. phenomenal. Really great. Yeah, my conclusions from this is Bernie and I are going to become millionaires because we're going <laughs> to create a drug that doesn't cause a survival disadvantage, a.k.a. it does absolutely nothing for patients. Yeah. Then we're going to market it just like COG is for nilarabine. And then, uh, yeah, yeah we're, it's going to become the new standard of care. <laughs> we're going to hire Flying Monkeys Craft Brewery to help us market it because their marketing is so excellent. Love it. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, yeah. All right. What should, what should we do next? Should we, should we keep picking on nilarabine? Yeah, absolutely. Because, okay. I, I, again, I think nilarabine, again, is is the the biggest joke in in upfront TLL. I think it has a place, mm -hmm. but it, it it's there's never been a study that actually has shown that nebularabine improves not only overall survival, but even event-free survival or disease-free survival when you're using it in a proper backbone, aka Capizzi. So that is not only just in adolescent young adults, that's also pediatric patients too. But again, we'll talk through this in a future episode. Yeah, we got to do TLL because there's so much to unpack. Yep. So um, to tell me about another study that also did not show no yeah. beans helpful. <laughs> so there was the Atrial study, which was a Grawl 2014 TALL study. This was a phase two study for nilarabine as consolidation in adults with high risk T cell ALL. And high risk here meant they were in CR prior to consolidation, but they had uh, unfavorable molecular characteristics, so they didn't have a notch or FX, FBX uh, W7 mutations, mm -hmm. or they had RAS P10 mutations, or mm -hmm. 
you know, they were MRD positive post induction. So these were high risk, TALL, and they were in CR. And this wasn't a randomized study. They just, it was a phase two where they were giving these patients uh, nilarabine as part of their consolidation or the mm -hmm. standard of care who didn't receive nilarabine. So this was sort of like a historical comparator of people who, before they decided to give nilarabine to these patients, were the control arm. Now the problem with this this sort of comparison is the standard of care group, because this isn't randomized, yeah. isn't the same as the nilarabine group. They were treated much earlier. Their median follow-up was significantly longer because these patients were treated, you know, almost two years on average, three years on average earlier mm -hmm. <laughs> than the nilarabine cohort. Um, there was uh, also higher ETP ALL in the in the the no nilarabine group at forty eight percent versus thirty two percent. These aren't statistically significant numbers, but the numbers mm -hmm. are small. There's thirty three patients yep. who didn't receive nilarabine and one hundred and twelve who did. Mm -hmm. What they found um, overall in the cohort, there was no benefit to nilarabine. There was no overall survival difference. Three-year overall survival was 76% in the no nilarabine arm and 72% in the nilarabine arm. Mm -hmm. There was better... So I, I'm surprised, yeah. but not surprised. I know. Uh, not surprised in the fact that, again, another study that shows nilarabine is not uh, useful in the frontline setting, but also surprised in that uh, we're not beating historical control because usually everything always beats historical control. Yeah, and I think part of that is in high-risk T-cell ALL, whether you give nilarabine or not, you have to take these patients to stem cell transplant. Yeah. Um, and when they censor for stem cell transplant, they did see better or lower cumulative incidence of relapse in the nilarabine arm. Okay. So perhaps if you weren't going to transplant in MRD positive patients, maybe there were less relapses in the nilarabine arm, but that still didn't translate into better survival for these patients. Yeah. Yep. So, so I don't think this changes our practice. It, it, it says there's no overall benefit to nilarabine, just like in pediatrics, <laughs> even in a non-randomized historical control comparison. Mm -hmm. Agreed. All right, another study uh, you wanna do Study number three, where nilarabine is also not helpful for frontline. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know not everybody uses BFM backbones, so we should probably talk about nilarabine plus, get it, PEG plus venetoclax plus hyper-CVAD in T-cell ALL. Uh, and this was a study from MD Anderson. Um, and they started with a backbone of hyper-CVAD nilarabine. And then they did four to five protocol amendments. Uh, <laughs> protocol amendment one was nilarabine changing from cycle eight to cycle four and five. Mm -hmm. Protocol amendment two was realizing that, oh crap, asparaginase is really important for TALL. So they added PEG, mm -hmm. capped at various doses. Um, protocol amendment three was, let's add venetoclax, like in every mm -hmm. disease state, right? Let's mm -hmm. add some venetoclax. <laughs> so they gave Ven, 400 daily for seven days of the first eight cycles, just seven days. Okay. And then so protocol. Hold, 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 <laughs> yeah, okay, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Okay. I, there's still more protocol. There's amendments? more. There's Jesus. more. I'm not. I'm not done. Oh. Uh, then protocol amendment four. They probably realized Ven is making my patients cytopenic, so they did Ven 400 daily for seven days in induction, and then didn't do it after that. So just seven days in induction. That's it. And then other patients, if you were ETP or MRD mm -hmm. positive, they gave it for three days 
in subsequent cycles. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. All right. Yep. Three days of Venetoclax. Okay. Right. Yep. So that's the protocol amendments. But 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 hold on a second. So nalarabine, when they added nalarabine to hyper CVAD, it did not prove improve outcomes. So mm -hmm. why why would you then continue with a hyper CVAD based backbone with nalarabine when nalarabine doesn't help? Why not just say you know what? Okay, nalarabine wasn't helpful. Let's now move on and add something else to hyper CVAD, and then just start back from scratch. Like okay, add PEG or add venetoclax. But now you've got a regimen with Nalarabine, asparaginase, venetoclax with three different doses. Um, and so there's a, there's like four different components to this, and we have no idea which one is actually helping the patients, or, or do we, Bernie? Well, because, Anthony, when we add drugs and there's no survival disadvantage, we should keep giving the drugs. I think <laughs> that's true, premise number one that we've learned. Um, no, oh, in, in, all seriousness, <laughs> in all seriousness, in all seriousness, I... I there is no rationale to continue beating your head against the wall when nalarabine doesn't improve outcomes. And I think that's a, a major detriment to this. The whole point, the whole argument for doing phase twos and just keep doing sequential phase twos versus doing phase threes is to learn via, you know, Bayesian approaches and, <laughs> you know, early stopping and early changes to change your mind. But yeah, the changing right. your mind can't just be, I want to just keep giving stuff <laughs> and never take away things that don't work. Yeah. Um, so this is, this is good point. Therapeutic stubbornness, I think. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, let's look at outcomes. So yeah. the three-year overall survival for hyper-CVED plus nilarabine, which is cohort one plus first amendment, was actually the worst at 66% <laughs> with hyper-CVED and nilarabine. When they added PEG, hyper-CVAD plus nilarabine plus PEG, their three-year overall survival was 88%. So adding PEG seemed to be the most important or beneficial. Again, mm -hmm. these are just sequential phase two patients, so shouldn't even really be comparing them anyway. And then the final cohorts, the last two protocol amendments, the hyper-CVAD plus nilarabine plus PEG plus uh, sprinkle, a sprinkle of venetoclax <laughs> uh, had a three-year overall survival of 76%. So Venetoclax didn't seem to improve survival upon just hyper-CVAD plus nilarabine plus PEG. So what do I conclude from this? I, nothing. Uh, <laughs> there's like a million protocol changes. When things didn't improve outcomes, we didn't remove them from the regimen, which is a shame. Um, we already know that BFM regimens with pegasparaginase lead to excellent outcomes in TALL as evidenced from the first study that we talked about. And adding Ven actually looked worse than just Nilarabine and Peg. So mm -hmm. I don't think there is a role, but you know, I think the conclusion here is that it shows promising long-term survival with the quadruple combination. And so they need longer studies and more studies. <laughs> the the myelosuppression in this is really worrisome to me. Mm -hmm. And you, you bring this out to the community or places um, you know, that don't use this amount of venetoclax, hyper-CVAD, et cetera, these patients are not going to have these same no. outcomes. No chance. No chance. This is a, a fit selected patient yeah. population. Yeah. You know, their, their median age was 35. You know, this is a pretty young cohort of yeah. patients also. This isn't your... Oh, that's young. Yeah, that's really young. Um, yeah. Younger than some of these other, other cohorts that we've talked about. So the last study I want to talk about in, in yeah. TALL, and then I think we can switch to, to B-cell stuff. 
um, I went to this presentation also. This was the ALL target study. And this was a study of targeted therapy or precision medicine therapy, everybody's favorite buzzword, for relapse refractory T-cell ALL. And this was a French uh, study. What I think was, was nice here was that there was a pretty broad inclusion criteria. It was basically all adults were eligible as long as they wanted to participate. And they had molecular characterization at their central ALL target lab, either at diagnosis or at relapse. Um, and then they were treated with salvage therapy, either conventional therapy or targeted therapy. I think the one caveat here is it does take time for sequencing, as we all know. Um, don't know exactly what the sequencing uh, speed was here, but in clinical practice, it can be fairly long, weeks, right? Um, and in this study, they looked at outcomes in patients who received the targeted therapy options. They didn't assess patients who received conventional therapy, and they didn't compare those patients either, but those could be two different patients with different disease biology, right? The people who got conventional therapy probably couldn't wait and needed to receive mm -hmm. therapy quicker. So I kind of like that they didn't, they, didn't, mm -hmm. they didn't show us that conclusion or that assessment. That wasn't what they were trying to say. They were trying to say, is it feasible to give targeted therapies for patients with relapse TALL where we have mm -hmm. you know, almost no therapeutic options? And their primary endpoint here was cumulative incidence of response by three months, which, you know, isn't isn't a great endpoint. It's just okay. response rate basically. But these were fairly heavily pretreated. Eighty-one percent of these patients were relapsed. The others were refractory. Uh, Sixty percent had prior nilarabine. About half were ETP or near ETP. Mm -hmm. And they gave targeted therapy to thirty percent of these patients. Now, what were the targeted therapies? We had targets or therapeutic targets of the IL-7 JAK-STAT pathway, which was venetoclax plus tofacitinib or ruxolitinib. There are some preclinical work that went into this ahead of time that they presented that, you know, I was kind of half asleep for, but, you know, very interesting preclinical work that they cited. They had targeted therapy for the PI3K AKT P10 pathway. And that was <laughs> venetoclax plus temsorolimus plus erwinase. Course, you got to add venetoclax. Yeah. Always, always. Yeah. Um, so mutations. Like, I would have I <laughs> thought like, you know, I don't know, T-cell ALL, ETPs, uh, FLT3. Flit they, they... they did think about giving gilteritinib uh, okay. to patients or with like, FLT3 uh, mutations. Like we've, we've had, we've had uh, NUP214 ABLE. Yep. Kinase mutation fusions. There Did was they have any of those? There was one patient with a NUP okay. able fusion that received a satinum. And then patients with RAS MEC ERK pathway alterations received trametinib um, plus dibrafenib, it appears. And then patients with methylation pathway alterations or PHF6 alterations, this methylation phenotype, received venonasa. And there's tiny numbers here. Yeah. So this is really just sort of hypothesis generating. 14 patients with the IL-7 receptor pathway alterations received VEN plus tofacitinib. The, the other large cohort was patients with methylation alterations. 16 received venonasa. And then there was like one patient that received a satinib for a NUP able fusion. Yeah. One patient who received, you know, MEK-RAF targeting therapy. 
and then one patient or two patients who received that crazy Venn, Temsorolmus, Irwinase combination. Um, anyway, what were their outcomes that they saw? Uh, it's really hard to make any conclusions based on the ends of ones, but the Azaven group had a 31% CR rate and a 25% CRI rate for a 56% overall response rate, which is not terrible. In the setting of relapse refractory TALL, where we've exhausted nalarabine and other combinations, oh, yeah. although now, if TLL's these are brutal, TLL is yeah, brutal yeah. to treat on relapse, especially just, early, especially early relapses in refractory patients. Oh yeah, you could make the argument that a late relapse patient might respond to another therapy yeah. at a yeah. you know thirty to fifty percent clip. So again, we're going to need comparative data. But I want to point out the tofacitinib plus Ven data that a lot of these patients got. Yeah, yeah. There was a 14% CRI rate, no CRs, oh, okay. pretty, pretty ineffective. So I think yeah. we can probably scrap this idea. I don't 100%. think that tofacitinib plus Ven is effective. I think the N of one with enough able fusion responded and there were a couple other N's oh, yeah. of ones. We've, so we've overall, had a good experience with, with the NUP2 yeah. and 4-able. Yeah. So I think overall, maybe Venonasa has a role in certain patients in the relapse factory setting maybe desatinib for these NUP able fusions. Yep. Their next strep is this is this drug assay where they're gonna get sensitivity testing in vitro, which we don't even really know what that means. Um, mm -hmm. Their median survival here was was not great. It was 13 months in patients with CRCRI, so there's a huge room to grow. But I think this is an area where maybe targeted therapy could work, but yeah. they need a larger N and they need uh, a randomized trial in this setting. And yeah. they are doing a confirmatory randomized trial. The EWAL target nice. study in first relapse comparing conventional therapy mm -hmm. to some of these options. Now, I think they should focus in on the arms here that responded the best. Yeah. I think that TOFA plus VEN arm Get rid of it. pretty abysmal, right? Yeah. So yeah. Cool. Yeah, no, I mean, I like it. Like it's, it's a thoughtful approach, right? Because mm -hmm. The current state of affairs in TALL, once you've exhausted your chemo, is like we're all just making stuff up. Like Daratumumab, Daratumumab, plus you know, right? Yeah, right, exactly. So I, I like it. I think it's that's this is science. Let's learn from it. It's great. Yeah. So they're actually trying. Like they're yeah. actually doing some good research there. All right. Enough of enough of what I saw, Anthony. I think it's uh, I think it's your turn. What what did you see that excited you at Ash, particularly? In, in B cell and pH positive ALO. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't go to ASH, and and so uh, the two studies that I picked up. I'm kind of an idiot because I didn't realize <laughs> they were just poster presentations. Um, so like it wasn't. You know, you you went to presentations, you saw oral abstracts. I presumed that these were orals, but then when I actually looked into them, there all I could find was posters. But anyways, um, so I want to talk about Philadelphia chromosome positive ALL. Um, because there is two posters, well, three posters that I want to talk with you about, uh, mm -hmm. and we'll talk about whether or not, because you mentioned right at the beginning, nothing was practice changing in ALL. Um, and let's let's talk about these and see if they actually are practice changing. So mm -hmm. just a, a little bit of a state of affairs in pH positive ALL. Frontline, there's a, a number of different arguments of how to treat this, right? You have those that believe in an intensive approach, intensive mm -hmm. chemotherapy, uh, and then followed by an allogeneic stem cell transplant, um, because historically these patients have done poorly. Uh, most of this poorliness has been 
in the past when we didn't have tyrosine kinase inhibitors like mm -hmm. desatinib, imatinib, ponatinib, et cetera. And so transplant was, uh, you know, helped uh, negate some of that negative prognostic aspect. So intensive approaches. And then the other uh, side of it is, you know, why don't we do a less intensive approach? And there's a variety of different ways to do this as well. Some would just do, um, you know, steroids with the TKI uh, and, you know, get patients to transplant. Some would just do steroid and TKI. And then unfortunately everybody relapses in nine, nine to 12 months. Mm -hmm. And then the, the new kids on the block now are, uh, what they coin as chemotherapy-free, which are not fully chemotherapy-free, but it's a TKI plus blenitumumab. Okay. And so, um, you know, there, there's no randomized controlled trial data to say, should we use an intensive approach? Do we need to take our patients to transplant? Do all of our patients need to go to transplant in the era of TKIs, blenitumumab? Do we even need transplant at all in patients? So there's a lot of open questions, and we only have phase two data to guide us. There mm -hmm. was, uh, you know... Bernie, you remember that study by Chandelon, uh, the phase three that randomized. The, was it a Grawl study or a Graf study yep. where it was low intensity induction versus yes. hyper-CVAD plus TKI? But then everybody got hyper-CVAD in consolidation. Exactly. <laughs> so they all got. So what that study tells me is in induction, you can mm -hmm. actually be more gentle. And you can be less Induction aggressive. is where yeah. you're going to see most of your mortality. And so... Uh, I think it's very reasonable to just do a low-intensity TKI steroid, mm -hmm. maybe some vincristine, uh, get them through that critical 30-day period where death mm -hmm. can occur at the highest proportions, uh, and then intensified later. So what that study showed was um, a low-intensity induction uh, led to less induction Toxicity. mortality yeah. compared to high-intensity. But we don't really know how, how the effects of continuation of low intensity are because they intensified all their patients later. Yeah. So that's the only randomized controlled trial that I know of in like modern day that that is kind of helped with our practice. But we're still at a state of a bunch of opinions, more opinions than we have data. Um, <laughs> so that leads us to uh, the three poster presentations, uh, which I, I think should have been in uh, should have been. Orals. Yeah. Um, yeah. They all have a common us. theme. They all have a common yeah. theme. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, so the first one was everybody knows this study, the D'Alba study, mm -hmm. uh, and this was already published in New England Journal of Medicine. But I would argue, like when it was published, I don't think it was practice changing, and nobody should have been changing practice at that point because we only had about eighteen months of follow up, and Short that's follow -up. not long enough yeah. to know how patients are going to do long term. Uh, so they have the update. Uh, that was presented, and they just published this in JCO this past month. They have mm -hmm. an update at four years. So wow. this is at the point where you can say, yes, 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 yes it is practice changing, or or no, it's not. And so just to, to remind you, this is a, a phase two study where they did a prephase of steroids, and then they did an induction with desatinib mm -hmm. with prednisone for about 84 days, and that was the induction. After induction, they moved on to blinitumumab for two cycles. Okay. They were able to do blin for a max of five cycles, and they also uh, had uh, added desatinib. So essentially, you know, it's a desatinib plus blinitumumab study. Mm -hmm. um, and their primary endpoint was uh, molecular response, but I think the most important endpoints for us is, is overall survival. Uh, the median age was 54, so it's a relatively young population for, for being pH positive, but nonetheless, mm. it is what it is. Um, and so disease-free survival at four years was 76%. Wow. Which, which is not 
an unfavorable prognosis anymore. That is yeah. incredible. Overall survival, 80%. Like this is this is rivaling like a, a pH negative younger population, right? Like an AYA that we d don't transplant, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, about 40% of patients were transplanted in this study. So after okay. they went received blenitumumab with desatinib, that consolidation, they were able to go on to investigator's choice. Um, and, and you can imagine there are a lot of different things that occurred. And a lot of these things are in the supplementary appendix in the, the latest publication in JCO. So you can take a look at them. Mm -hmm. But you can imagine, um, you know, if patients are not becoming molecularly negative, they're going to be switching to things like panotinib. They might give more cycles of blin. Mm -hmm. um, those are patients that they're going to be considering transplant to. So there, there were uh, additional pieces of treatment that were given. But nonetheless, uh, close to 50% of patients only continued the TKI by itself. And the other really important thing that we learned from this study is those patients with Icarus Plus, those patients had a higher propensity for relapse compared to those that didn't have an Icarus uh, deletion plus, you know, one of the other uh, genetic abnormalities mm -hmm. that occur in the, the Icarus Plus. Um, and so, so what the Jamima group took from this is, hey, maybe the Icarus Plus patients are the patients we should continue to transplant because clearly TKI with blenitumumab is not enough for these patients given mm -hmm. uh, their, their risk of relapse. And then the, the second study that I want to go through, and then we'll, we'll chit-chat a little bit about this, is um, the MD Anderson study of blenitumumab with panotinib. So mm -hmm. last year at ASH, this was an oral. They only had one year of follow-up. This was published, I think it's in Lancet, um, with only the one year of follow-up. We talked about this last year on our podcast. We all said, do not change your practice yet. You only have one year of follow-up. Just wait to see what happens. Um, and so now we're at a period where I think we have about two years of follow-up. So the, remember, this is blenitumumab with panotinib. Uh, they got it, uh, blenitumumab, for up to five cycles and then mm -hmm. panotinib for about five years. Another uh, relatively young population, 56 years of age. And then they have disease-free survival and overall survival at two years. Yeah. So the disease-free survival was 77% at two years which is essentially the same that yeah. the Jamima group has at four, at four years. years. Yeah. yeah. So so this is this is one of the reasons why we said hold on let's wait for longer follow up because what when we had the one year follow up the survival curves we all laughed at them because they were a straight line. A straight line, yeah. Essentially saying hey blenitumumab plus panotinib cures every single patient and their disease is completely eviscerated mm -hmm. by this combination. Mm -hmm. uh, but now we're seeing at 2 years a, a very stark drop yeah. off. Now you could argue most of the relapses for pH positive ALL do occur within the first two years. So maybe we're done here and maybe yeah. we won't see more relapses, but that's a maybe, that's a hard maybe. Yeah. And so I would love to see, you know, four years of follow-up or a couple more years more like the Jamima group does mm -hmm. to show that, you know, we aren't still seeing more relapses there. This, um, this study did not take, uh, patients to transplant. In fact, only one patient ended up going to transplant of, of 62 patients. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a major difference. Um, and there were more CNS relapses than I would have anticipated. 
Um, so that's another thing that we need to be thinking about when we're not giving any chemotherapy is the question, uh, is just intrathecals enough to prevent CNS relapse? Yeah. Um, so lots, lots, of, lots of things to discuss here, Bernie. Oh, yeah, and then the, the last study, last study, just very, very okay, quickly, okay. was another um, Jamima group. So after the D'Alba study mm -hmm. uh, was, was completed, they moved on to panotinib with blinitzumumab. Mm -hmm. um, but they did something I think was a lot more thoughtful uh, than, than the MD Anderson was. They did more of a risk stratified approach where they took patients that were Icarus Plus and they said, hey, if, if you can get a transplant, you should go on to an allotransplant, which yeah. I, I, I agree with and I like that. Because those patients- And they did relapse. more intrathecal, right? They did triple intrathecal therapy? They did more intrathecals, yep, exactly, because yeah. of this risk of relapse without any chemotherapy. And then the other thing that they did was if patients were uh, persistently MRD positive, mm -hmm. they also considered them for transplant as well. So that all makes sense to me. Um, you have high-risk patients that, you know, the standard of care for pH-positive ALL technically is still the transplant all. Mm -hmm. MD Anderson's saying transplant none. Jamima is saying transplant those that are at incredibly high risk because we don't have enough data to stop doing it for them at least. So do your Icarus Plus, do your uh, molecularly positive, your MRD positive patients. So, hmm. so that's the state of affairs that we have with pH positive ALL. Burn wow. thoughts. Yeah, I think I think this is really really promising data. Mm -hmm. My only my only worry um, is that these are these are not huge studies, right? These are phase mm -hmm. two single arm studies. So I think if you were to study this in a in a larger phase three population, I think you probably have to tamper your expectations somewhat. And that's seen universally, right? Yep. Every single arm phase two study looks better than what we see Always. in phase three trials in patients where, you know, maybe you can't just give uh, blinitumumab plus a TKI. I think that the the CNS relapse rates and I think some of the extramedullary relapse rates in yeah. the panatinib data are a little concerning. Um, so, you know, I, I wonder if in some of these patients there would be a role for some chemotherapy. Yeah. Like we've yeah. jumped from TKI, yeah. you know, TKI plus intensive, intensive chemo, right? <laughs> to TKI and blip. We just like, yep. we're like, F this, we're done, right? But there is there a middle ground to take care of some of these extra medullary relapses? You know, in some of these MRD positive patients, rather than taking them to transplant right away, like maybe those patients would have done better with a little bit of chemotherapy, right? You're giving mm -hmm. them no chemotherapy at all. And some of these drugs that you know, aren't really that toxic. I mean, they're toxic, right? But like vincristine, vincristine. is one of the most effective drugs in ALL. And we've just said, you know what, abandon bye it, bye. right? Bye-bye, see, see you later. So they're, cytoxin, such an right. effective drug, so well tolerated in elderly patients. Hmm. And it's, it's kind of weird. We've gone from everything to nothing yeah. Yeah. just in a couple of phase twos. And I do think this approach probably will be better than full intensity therapy plus TKI. No doubt because of toxicities. But is there a middle ground approach? And that's that's where I think we don't know right now and probably need more, probably comparative trials. Now, what do you compare it to? That's an open question. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. No, I agree completely with you. I love it. And I think, I think this needs to be a call to action. Mm -hmm. um, we've got multiple great leads here. Mm -hmm. uh, let's, let's pick one. Okay. Let's just pick one and go for it. I, I, yeah. I love the Jamima approach. It's uh, cool. Panotnib with Blinn. Uh, and, and in those that can't tolerate panotinib because of the cardiovascular complications and the risk factors, whatever, give them to satinib and mm -hmm. follow their approach of following MRD, transplanting Icarus Plus, and then pick another comparator. I, I, we just have to come together to, to, to be okay with something that's not our standard, but still a standard. So if, yeah. if we all come together and say, you know what, hyper-CVAD plus to satinib, which, which has probably the second most data mm -hmm. or or probably arguably the most data in ph positive age well. adjusted hyper right. yeah yeah just let's let's just pick that one run mm -hmm. a randomized control trial yeah and we'd have our answer you could we this needs to be a, a worldwide effort and mm -hmm. i i think that we can agree upon things but i i think we just have to get rid of our biases Mm -hmm. and our stubbornness and just say, hey, we need to answer this question. We can't just keep doing phase twos and let everybody continue yeah. to guess. And, and you know, if we're going to spend a million dollars on using five cycles of blin, I want to actually know that I'm improving these patients' overall survival. Well said. Well said. <laughs> Call to action. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, it, you know, and then it also brings up a question. So the median age here, you know, 54, 56, and, you know, each study respectively, what about the patients that are, you know, 65, 70, 75? Um, if you can attain an event-free survival or disease-free survival of 75% at four years in a patient at that age, that's absolutely remarkable. And I think the tolerability for these patients um, is definitely compelling compared to, yeah. you know, trying to hammer them with hyper-CVAD followed right. by allotransplant, or you can't even do allotransplant um, and so yeah. they might be at risk for relapse if you don't use these agents. I, I think that is the age, the fitness of these patients is an important thing you bring up, right? Like these are, the, the role for this would be optimal in older adults. Yeah. And I suspect older adults do a little bit worse than the overall cohort here. Yeah, for sure. And if you're looking at the younger patients, they do pretty well with mm -hmm. intensive chemo or mm -hmm. slightly less intensive chemo plus a TKI plus blin, right? We already know from, you know, ECOG 1910 to add blin to these patients for MRD, you know, negative disease and MRD mm -hmm. positive disease. And we see excellent outcomes. And these are, those are right. phase three for studies. PH yeah, pH, pH negative. But mm -hmm. can we see the same outcomes in pH positive? Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting question. These are a little bit younger than you you would have expected for for where this should be used. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think uh, I mean we talked about this last year on our podcast with MD Anderson data. It's a highly selected population. Their white counts are not as high as I would have anticipated a pH positive patient. We have no idea how many patients are Icarus deleted, Icarus mutated. The Jamima group we do know, but it was also a, a, a smaller percentage than what we see in our clinical practice. We usually see about seventy to eighty percent of our patients being Icarus yeah. deleted. How many this are Icarus like plus? I, I don't know. I'd have to look at our yeah. data. Yeah, and so and and when we looked at ours, we've published this. Uh, our patients that are, f you know, fit for, um, you know, intensive chemotherapy slash uh, allotransplant, our four-year disease-free survival or overall survival 
is mirrors the Jamima group. It's about seventy five percent at at four mm-hmm. years, and so and that's in the real world patients. I know. <laughs> um, so on one side, you could argue, um, you know, potentially our results are better because they're real world patients with real comorbidities and and, and issues. But you could also argue the opposite of well, if you're attaining the same outcomes and you're but, transplanting a hundred percent of your yeah, patients versus none. Versus or none, a lower lower percentage, forty percent. Yeah, why not do the low intensity and save so, them from transplant? So let's compare <laughs> it, right? Like this is where your totally call to, your call to action is yep. perfect. Like we need to know. This is so this is exciting, but we yeah. we need to know. We need to it have these questions done. answered. It and can it, be done. It Look at Hodgkin's lymphoma. Look yes. at all these beautiful phase three studies hodgkins is only what five six thousand new cases in the united states all is the same whatever let's add our pediatric colleagues to the group they clearly are 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 out to lunch with their treatments they're giving even more intensive therapies uh for For their ph positive positive. have you seen that european protocol that that we know that many (laughs) use it's insane it's a bfm backbone but they also include so many high risk like randomizations where they add a bunch of extra chemo. Like it is super, super chemo intense. It is way more chemo intensive than than ours with hyper CVAD. Yeah, it's it's crazy. So Yikes. whatever, add add our pediatric colleagues to, to to the randomization if we really have to. And these studies are done in, you know, two years in just one cooperative group. You yeah, know, if we had right. a global effort or even a cooperative group answering this, it's yeah. not like you're gonna have to wait five years to have an answer. You're gonna no, know no. quickly, mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. And if, if, and to your point, if if we would have started when that New England Journal of Medicine article <laughs> came out in 2020 of of the Dialba study, um, if we we'd already know, we would already know. If we would have just immediately know. started running it, we would know right now. But everybody <laughs> has to run their own with their favorite flavor yeah. and backbone and TKI, and we just can't decide, and mm-hmm. it's kind of disappointing. Yeah. Ultimately, we need to do things for patients, not for ourselves, not for our careers, not, not for we profits. Think we're doing what's best for patients. Yes, not for profits, it's for patients. And so, yeah, uh, sounds a lot like common sense oncology, Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> it does. Yes. All right, sir. That's about all I got today. Anything else from your end? No, nothing else. Uh, there was a, a Calpeg study, but uh, oh yeah. Should, yeah, we, should, we, should we finish with that? Okay. Well, I think, I think, well, so here's the back stretch, right? So um, Calpeg is now uh, mandatorily being given to our, our PEDS patients up to the age of what, 21. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's, there's a lot of. Based on PK data. Based off of PK data. And there, so there's a lot of uh, concerns of that people are seeing extra toxicities. Um, and it makes sense that the half-life is much longer. Um, and especially in some protocols, you actually see like dose um, accumulation because the doses are so close. Like Dana-Farber um, protocols, etc. Yep, yep. Or even T-cell ALL protocols. Where we give, uh, You'll yeah. see. And so a lot, there, there, a lot of people have been, you know, seeing more pancreatitis, more thrombosis, more hepatotoxicity, just anecdotally. Um, mm-hmm. And so the group from, I think this was CHOP. Mm-hmm wanted to actually look to see, you know, are we actually seeing this phenomenon or is it just, you know, we're all mad 
that we've all had to switch to CalPEG, <laughs> and so we're just biased, right? So, so they took patients, uh, it's a pre-post study, patients previously received PEG, they took a look at their toxicities, and then they took a look at toxicities now that they switched over to CalPEG, and what were the differences? And what they found was there was more, uh, and I don't know if you're looking at yeah, the Yeah, I have it. There's remembering more, off yeah, pancreatitis. There's, there's more pancreatitis at 12.8% versus 2.4%. Um, and in their T, ALL patients, there was higher pancreatitis and VTE, 33% versus 0% in both arms. But there was also higher allergy with PEG versus CalPEG at 17.9 versus 4.3%. And 5% of patients had silent inactivation in the PEG compared to zero in CalPEG. Probably not actually zero, but lower rates. I, I think some, some caveats here. Yes. This is not a randomized study this is a pre post study where because they assessed toxicities by patient and not by dose mm -hmm. it depends on how many doses you got and so if they were giving more TALLs more doses of PEG you're going to see higher rates of toxicity in one arm than the other i'm not sure it 100%. fully <laughs> it fully accounts for the differences in toxicity with CalPEG. I do think CalPEG is probably more toxic, but there are unmeasured confounders here that they didn't control for. One other factor, they use yeah. CTCAE version five. And so the allergy grading, you might as well just throw it out the window. Yeah. Like it's useless, yeah. right? Because grade three allergy in CTCAE version five is if you use IV drugs to respond to a hypersensitivity reaction, which is yeah. like every reaction. So yeah. that's that's dumb. And CTCAE version five for grading actually occurred after, like this occurred later in the time course. So it's probable that retrospectively reviewing regular PEG cases versus CalPEG cases, and it's hard to say to to assess these toxicities in a in a true retrospective fashion. They also don't tell us when like when they do their activity levels, like is this standardized? It seems to be kind of random looking at their their chart and they tried to correlate like levels with toxicities and they say mm -hmm. peak activity levels were not different, some different among those patients with toxicities, but it's not so much about the peaks, it's about the no. longer duration of yep. depletion, which we already know that CalPEG yep. depletes longer. And they found that when they looked at uh, the AUC, the mm -hmm. AUC did predict for toxicities, which makes sense. And mm -hmm. the AUC with CalPEG is is it's, definitely higher. It's definitely definitely higher. Yeah, I mean you could just so, see it in the in the activity levels. But mm -hmm. I, I think this is probably something we need to talk about on a future episode: the yeah. CalPEG versus PEG discussion, because I think it's quite spicy that mm -hmm. we approved this drug based on primarily PK data where. We were not powered to look at toxicities, which mm -hmm. is the most concerning change of using a longer acting PEG product. Yep. And I don't think we can make conclusions based on this retrospective data here, but I think it's a, it's a signal. Yep. Yep. No, I, th I think that was perfectly well said. I think, again, anecdotally, we, we are seeing more toxicities. You talk to people across the country, they're seeing it. Um, this study doesn't show that though. Uh, Bernie Bernie perfectly stated there are way too many confounders. I would not take this study and and bring it to our group and say, hey guys, look, CalPEG causes more toxicities. I, I would be ripped apart because there are so many confounders. The the TALL piece is is a big thing for me. Mm -hmm. um, so TALL protocols have many many more 
asparaginase doses. So 100%. Yeah. Is it is it truly the cowpeg or is it the fact that you gave many more doses of, of asparaginase? And there are way more TALLs in the cowpeg group. So that's a huge thing. And also, like even if they gave TALL patients in the peg group, um, what protocol were they using? Were they using, you know, 0434, which has a, a, a less number of peg doses compared to 1231, which is the more, you more know, augmented uh, contemporary? Yeah, and so like, are those the T cells and that are that are getting Calpeg 1231, which is a lot of lot of asparaginase. So, I, I, this study, unfortunately, it doesn't answer the question. Um, but it was yeah. a nice attempt, and I think, I think a multi-center study needs to be conducted, and I think we need to match patients and we need to control for the confounders, mm-hmm. and after which, um, I think, I think we'll we'll have a better conclusion. And I think we need to carefully think about the use in AYA patients where this was so understudied, but that's an episode for future uh, discussion because I think the use of this drug in older adults in AYA patients, I think is honestly unethical. Um, So yeah, that's all I'm going to say. No, I think I think I think it hasn't been I think you you said it perfectly. It hasn't been adequately studied in older patients. And to mandate it, to mandate it is unethical. Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, mandating anything from a company is that's that's not how we should be doing things. Nope. Um, the, but the FDA, the FDA should should have a little bit more authority. Um, they're they're here to protect patients. Um, and yeah, yeah. Well, that was a good ALL discussion, I think, Anthony. I thought it was beautiful. I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was uh, nice to get off my couch, <laughs> have a conversation. <laughs> yeah. Out of Although the, I'm uh, still on my couch, just not laying, <laughs> laying on the laying ground. in a heap of grade one two toxicity from uh, daycare daycare virus. Oh, oh man, it's it's real. <laughs> well, so. I hope you get better and you recover, and uh, we'll come back to talk about some more interesting leukemia data and uh, other topics in the future. Beautiful, always a pleasure, sir. Ciao. All right, cheers. cheers.